focus on how matching skills of players and then developing properly will really help build your culture. And we're going to talk to that with the offensive line coach at FIU, Joel Rodriguez. Coach, great to have you here on the podcast. Keith, thanks for having me on. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a while now, and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to be on here. Coach, um, we know you, you played in the NFL, and you obviously had all those experiences that go along with that. And, you know, I don't know if it was maybe those experiences that propelled you on to want to be a coach or it's, it's something that happened earlier. But for you, what was the draw to the coaching profession? And, you know, when did you decide you wanted to make that move? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and it's something that, that it's probably somewhat unique to me uh, being in the, in the profession now. But I actually fought being a coach kind of tooth and nail early on in my life when I first got done playing. Um, I had, you know, my high school coach and uh, people in my life that were, hey, you know what, you'd be a good coach. And I was like, you know what, because I was close with my high school with my high school coach and my college coaches and my and the guys who I worked with in the NFL. And I knew what the life was like. I knew about the instability and the moving around and the, the hours and that kind of stuff. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do that initially when I first got done playing. Uh, I thought I was going to be a police officer or an FBI agent or something like that. Um, and I was actually going down that route. And then uh, I, had, I had a dead time in my, my life where I was waiting for the Police Academy uh, to start up, and it was football season, my first year done playing and everything, and my, I was back home in South Florida, and my high school coach said, hey, why don't you come out and just help out? All the kids know you, and you know, I think it'd be a good asset. You just, you'll, be, you'll be like the assistant to the O-line coach, just come for practices. You don't got to come for meetings or anything and that kind of stuff, and I did that, and within probably two weeks, some things happened where, A, I became the, o, the O-line coach because the guy who was, I was working under got was forced to leave, but more importantly, I got bit by the bug, and that's really where it hit me. You know, just um, you know, having the relationship with the players, watching guys. Like, for example, I coached high school football that 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 the rest of that fall and that spring. That fall and spring before before I got my first college job, um, I had four, I think three or four linemen that had never played offensive line before. They were like fullbacks or JV linebackers or whatever prior to that. Um, I had one really good national recruit. And Greg Shaw, who was my my, my, my right tackle, um, and then you know, over the course of a month worth of practice, seeing those guys go from being you know a ragtag bunch of bad news bears to you know running the ball for a thing like you know I don't remember what it was, but over 150 200 yards in a spring game and winning the game and controlling the clock in the game, and seeing the way how much pride they took in it and everything, um, it was like literally I got bit by the bug at that point and I never wanted to do anything else and I haven't ever ever want to do anything else besides this for the last, you know, 13, 14 years. I know before we got going, you mentioned some different influences as, as far as who you are as a coach right now, but um, a big one coming from uh, the time you played for uh, Mike Munchak and that he's had a big influence on the way that you coach things. Can you explain to us exactly what that influence was and, and how it's made its way into really who you are as a coach today? Yeah, a hundred percent. So like we talked off air or, or, before the, before we started recording, I think Munch has probably had the biggest impact and influence on me in, as a, as a coach, right. In terms of my coaching style, how I present things, how I deal with players um, than any other individual person I've been around um, before or since. Um, and the reason for it is just, you know, I had a I had a great high school coach again, Joe Zacchio, who was very successful, won a couple of state championships. He's retired now, and I'm still very close with him. 
Art Kehoe, who was like a legendary offensive line coach at Miami for 20-some-odd years straight, had, you know, was part of all five championships, was my line coach all five years in college. So those are my two major influences before um, Munch, and they're both kind of the same personality. Old school, fiery, get after you, you know, a lot of fire to you, put their hands on you if need be, right, that kind of stuff. Um, Munch was the exact opposite. I, I don't think Munch ever even raised his voice in the two years I was with him, but his point was always heard. It was it always it always got home. Um, just the way he delivered it and the way he packaged it to individual guys. Um, and the way he was able to tailor and what we talked about earlier was, you know, his overall basic rules or basic tenets um, um, schematically of how to how do how you block inside zone or how you block stretch or how you block power or gap scheme or whatever. They're they're very, very simple and they're very kind of um, there's a lot of like kind of same as teaching to it, a lot of crossover uh, from tackles to guards to centers and so on and so forth. But what the genius with Munch is the way that he was, he's able to tailor those things, not just to individual positions, but to individual players. Uh, and I'm sure from his time in the NFL being in there for so long, um, you know, understand that, you know, great players come in all shapes and sizes and you can't coach a left tackle who's in year 14 and who's 6'3", 270 in the NFL, the same way you can the rookie right tackle who's 6'6", six, six, and 330. You know, there's just, just different body types, and they move differently, and they react differently, and they have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, so, you know, what they're asked to do for a living is the same, but how you ask them to do it is very, very different. And that's kind of probably the biggest influence on me, uh, and that comes directly from Munch. And, you know, the, the way that I, was, I reached out to you, you actually commented on, uh, something I put out there, and I, I don't remember if it was the uh, the podcast on it or the article on it, but I've been putting together and looking at, you know, how you match a personnel to the different schemes that are there. And we were in a time right now with, uh, you know, in the last year, the virtual space has opened up immensely. Uh, not that it wasn't easy before, but we have all these Zoom clinics and guys connecting in different ways than you ever have before, and you don't have to, you know, travel and and spend a lot of time or money on things, you can get together with somebody for a little bit and learn things. So we're, we've, we've got all this knowledge flowing all over the place, um, but at the heart of what we do is, is still people. So while you may love what you saw in a scheme or in a clinic or on film or in a Zoom with somebody, you still have to fit people into that. And, uh, you know, when we can put out there, and, and I started with it, here's the ideal lineman. Here's what we're looking for in these positions. But, you know, those, those guys aren't necessarily available for everybody. And if you get one, you might not have five. So you have to look at what's going to be the most optimal thing for these guys to start. It's about skill utilization, skill placement. How do you put people in a position to succeed? And of course, there's still the development because there's going to be deficiencies even in that, or there's going to be things that you, you know, aspire to move your team towards together, both as the individuals and as the unit. And, uh, you know, it's, again, that's something that I don't think we talk about enough as we look at things. We fall in love with those schemes or those systems and, and don't maybe put a, enough thought into what is our starting point on this. And that's something that, you know, you're really talking about here, finding a way to make it fit for a certain player. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're absolutely right. I, um, man, as I mentioned earlier, I've listened to the podcast and I've, I've read everything or most things you put out now for about at least about a year or so. Um, and it wasn't until I, I read and, and heard those uh, podcasts that, that talked about, you know, 
the strengths and weaknesses of, you know, certain linemen in certain positions and kind of what, you know, what, what interior linemen does for a living in a zone or, or, or stretch scheme offense, opposed to a gap scheme offense is different, um, same for tackles and so forth. And, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mentioned earlier when we talked off air um, that I was, I was kind of hit the face with that re- revelation early in my career. Thank God. I was maybe my second or third year as a full-timer uh, when I was at Bryant University up in New England. And, you know, we had just gone from, you know, D2 to FCS. We had, um, you know, a, a kind of a talent deficient roster compared to, to who we're playing against in our, in our league. But the biggest thing was, you know, we, we kept saying ourselves on defense at least, Hey, we are a zone coverage, you know, keep the ball funny type operation. So don't recruit safeties, go recruit a bunch of corners, uh, big corners. And the ones that can't play corner can play safety. And then over the course of a couple of years, we were a really, really poor pass defense. And then you go back and look at it. Well, we were like in blitz man coverage, like 75% of the snaps. So we're asking guys to do something for a living that they can't do. And we're putting them in a very disadvantageous position. Uh, so we changed our whole recruiting philosophy to fit the scheme we wanted to, that we wanted to, to, uh, to be, which was a man blitz team. We, we recruited a bunch of guys who were really good man coverage guys. We had to sacrifice some size to get those guys, right? So we had a bunch of 5'8", 5'9", even a 5'7 kid. We signed three in that next class. All three of them were four-year starters, and all three of them were, were, were multi-year conference players. And our, our defense became immensely better within the course of just, you know, a year or two because we actually had guys whose skill sets matched what they were asked to do for a living. And it's, you know, obviously, as a line coach, it's the same. Um, you know, I, the last two or three offenses I've worked in, we've been primarily spread, mostly inside zone, a little bit of gap, a little bit of map, you know, tackle wrap type stuff, whatever. Uh, so, you know, it's funny when, when myself and Coach Moorhead first got together at Florida, we had, we had known each other prior too. But when I first got hired there, when we were talking uh, about recruiting, he's like, well, you know, I want to, I like to recruit all tackle bodies, all big, tall, long guys. And the ones that are too stiff or are not good to play tackle, we'll put them inside and make them guards. And I couldn't disagree more. I said, well, based off of what it sounds like our offense is going to look like, and what we're going to be doing for a living, those guys are going to have to win in, on the interior a lot of one-on-one matchups. So we're going to run inside zone to the three technique. We're going to run the, the, the tackle wrap stuff to an, to an A-gap player. they got to hold up one-on-one and move guys at least horizontally, if not vertically, off the ball. You're not going to do that with a stiff, long tackle playing guard. They're going to get their ass kicked, you know. So over the course of a couple of years, we ended up recruiting completely different. And, and there were some guys that were kind of like, you know, swing guys. You always have some of those. But – we started recruiting completely different body types uh, for tackle, for, you know, edge players and inside guys. Our inside guys, you know, we needed power. We needed girth. We needed guys that moved, that moved the pile when they hit it, right? They had some snap in their hips, had some, some pop and some punch. So you're not going to get those guys at the FCS level if they're 6'6 and 320, right? But you can get them if they're 6'1 or 6'2 and, and, and 315, right? So we, so we were sacrificing length to get that power we wanted on the interior. And then uh, the opposite was true on the edge. Our tackles were very rarely stressed in the running game because we had so much, you know, interior stuff, whether it was, you know, inside zone or the map scheme stuff. Uh, where they were stressed the most was either as pullers in our tackle wrap schemes or in, in pass pro, right? Because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, tackles are always more stressed than pass pro. So for those guys, we were not going to sacrifice length or athletic ability, you know, change of direction, quickness, that kind of stuff. But we would sacrifice some of the girth and the power because they didn't need it. So, and to me, 
the year that we were that we were the best while I was there was probably 2014, I think it was. Um, and we had both our left guard, left tackle were both first team All Americans that year. And both of those guys were completely different body types. The left tackle was 6'6", 275 pounds. He was a kid from from he was a third tackle in high school from St. Iggy's in Cleveland. He was a partial scholarship kid that worked his worked his ass off and became an All American. He actually grad transferred after I left and started at right tackle for Florida the following year in the SEC. Um, and then our guard was a kid from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who was 6'2", 6'3", 315 pounds, who when he hit you, you felt it, right? Um, if you had played the tackle at guard or the guard at tackle, they'd be very, very, very below average players. But because they were, they were, they were recruited to a certain, certain skill set, to a certain scheme, and they put into that scheme and allowed to flourish and develop and all that kind of stuff like you mentioned earlier, um, they had great careers, and we all benefited from it. You know, when I when I look at and listen to you talking about that aspect of it, again, just fitting people into at least a great starting point. As I said, I think coaching is also about developing people. But, you know, uh, the success on the field, but also what that does for the culture of the team. And I think it's something that's not talked about enough. When we talk about the big grand ideas, the vision that starts everything, which is important. It has to start there. It has to start with those philosophies. But ultimately, you know, it's about the, the results. And the results are you're really tied to the behaviors. And the behaviors in football, you know, not just we're not just talking the intangibles. I mean, we need the execution out on the field. And if, you, if you're wrong, if you put the wrong schemes in, if you put the wrong people in the wrong spots, uh, it starts to fracture your culture. It starts to diminish their belief in you as a coach and really their belief in each other. And so uh, it's hard to get things going when they don't feel they're in a position to have success. And I think it starts with understanding that fit. I think you're absolutely right. You know, and, and it's the same. I mean, look at it from an academic standpoint, right? I mean, let's just say, for example, you know, Harvard and Yale seem to be two schools that everyone kind of agrees upon or kind of a cut above most other schools in the country in terms of the academic prowess and how demanding that would be for most students, right? Well, those schools have very high rigorous admission standards for a reason, right? If you went and started taking a bunch of kids that were, you know, very marginal or very, or very average students and, and, and put them into those universities academically, some may flourish, who knows, right? But for the most part, the numbers will tell you that most people, most of those guys would really, really struggle or they would have to, they would have to probably they have to probably um, apply an overabundance of time to just stay above water academically, and their social life and their and their athletic lives and everything else would suffer because of that, right? So they wouldn't have very well-rounded experiences, which would lead to a fracture in culture and would lead to them being, you know, feeling you know frustrated and why am I here and who brought me here and I can't I'm doing exactly what coach told me to do or exactly what the professor told me to do, but I just can't I just can't get it, you know. And that and you're absolutely right. I think when when people think that they're doing all they can. And they still can't quite cut it. Um, it, it. It has a, a demoralizing effect on the individual and the collective. Absolutely. So you had the opportunity to work with Joe Moorhead at Fordham, and um, you know while you guys were there, and you already alluded to one of those, the map schemes, right? You started to put together some schemes that fit very well with your personnel. Exactly what we're talking about here. So, uh, and I had remembered that when you when you brought it up before we started recording that. Oh, you guys were the one. That's right. I remember that scheme. I was actually just thinking about it. I think it was last week. I'm like, what? 
wonder whatever happened to like that that scheme. I haven't heard a whole lot of, about it lately. <laughs> but but uh, I I did think it was uh you know it was is very unique, especially at the time. But uh, you guys did a good job with that. Could you I- explain the map scheme for our listeners? Yeah. So uh, well, first of all, like I said earlier, um, if there's any kind of trademark rights to the name, it has to go to Andrew Briner. Who was our who was our quarterback coach and pass game coordinator? Who's who's really really good and really smart because um, he's the one that, that we, we were talking about like what kind of scheme does this fall into and because it was ha- kind of half man half guy. He's like, well, it's map. Like, oh, that makes perfect sense actually. <laughs> so he's the one that kind of came up with the uh, the nomenclature for it. Uh, but in terms of what the map schemes are and kind of how it evolves, so it's literally you know the, the whole offensive staff, brand new staff. Joe gets hired from UConn. He brings some guys, a couple of GAs and. QC's from UConn and a couple guys from other places. Myself, I came from Bryant, and and we're we, you know we're gonna put this offense together, right? And Joe, you know, had had some success running the one back power play. I, actually, a lot of success running one back power and tackle wrap um, at um, at UConn uh, his previous his previous stop. But the issue was we didn't really have a tight end uh, on the roster that we felt good about that matched up physically running true one back power and securing the edge uh, on a six technique in the Patriot League because, you know, it, just, it was just a bad matchup. Um, so, I heard, well, how do we run one back power without a tight end, essentially, right? Or out of 10 personnel, if you want to run to, or to open side or whatever. So, when they said, well, why don't we just man the guard and tackle play side and pull the guard around in the open gap, and then we'll kind of figure it out from there. That's kind of how the whole thing started. Um, and, and, of course, the tackle wraps up the dart play kind of falls into that as well, if you think about it. Um, so it's man on the front side and gap on the back side, uh, or at least gap principles on the back side. And so that's, that's kind of where it came from. And, uh, and it kind of grew and grew, and, and we, we expanded uh, how much we called it, how much we carried it with RPO packages attached to it, with uh, zone read or, or read principles attached to it, uh, and all these different things. And, and, um, and it's funny because, you know, you, you don't hear about it as much anymore, but uh, like I, I, I spent a lot of time in the offseason watching other teams um, I'm watching Oklahoma, and probably a third of their run game has some kind of map element to it. You know, um, everybody that runs tackle wrap, dart, that's a map scheme play. Uh, however you choose to, to verbalize it, that's a map scheme play in, in my mind, right? Um, so it's still alive and well. It's just probably not – it's not new anymore, I guess, but it's, it's still very much prevalent as, as in college football. I'm not sure it's, it's made its way to the NFL just yet. Um, but in college football, it's in the Big 12, it's – in the ACC, um, it's all over the place. Yeah, well, you definitely see it. You, you don't hear the, – the term didn't get as sticky, I guess, the, the map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Unfortunately, we'll, we'll blame Reiner for that too. <laughs> <laughs> with um, with that, what where did you like to run that to? What kind of front um, was the preferred front for that scheme? Yeah, I think, I think ideally you want to run it to an open B-gap. That way the guard can kind of – can, can, can compress down on the A-gap player and the tackle can, can keep the end at bay outside and you have the open B-gap for the one or two pullers to fit in there. Um, but it was just part of our DNA at Fordham, especially by like year two and year three, to where we just can, we were just able to call it and run it and we didn't care whether it was a three or a two or an A-gap bubble, B-gap bubble, because in all reality, even if there is an A-gap, a B-gap bubble, it may not be a B-gap bubble with the ball snap because of movement, you know? Um, so, but ideally, I think you want to run it to where you can dictate where the where the B gap bubble is would be, you know, probably how, where you have the most success on it. 
I know in, in terms of, again, making adjustments for your personnel, there was a time at, at, at uh, Fordham where you guys had to get into some different things for your quarterback, uh, a little bit with the swing and the draw. And talk to us a little bit about, you know, again, that kind of adjustment, making sure that your, your people are positioned for success. Yeah, definitely. So the offense evolved really – I was with Joe for three years, 2012, 13, and 14. The offense evolved dramatically, I felt like, each year. And, and, it all became, and again, it's all driven by personnel, right? So in 2012, we were just installing a base offense. It was our first year there. We were a very young football team. Um, and we're still figuring out yeah, who our players are and what they do well. So we were a very generic – I won't say generic because Joe will probably hate when I say that, right? But kind of a, a – a pretty generic America's traditional spread offense, right? Inside zone, zone read, a little bit of the, of the map stuff, um, a little bit of stretch uh, from the flat back stuff, and of course all your, you know, our, you know, uh, the play actions and sprint outs and drop back games. Um, very, very basic. Um, 2013, we had a quarterback transfer in named Michael Niebrick, who transferred from UConn, who Joe had recruited to UConn. And Neebs was a great kid, a great athlete. Uh, he actually is a kid from Virginia who broke all of Michael Vick's high school records for touchdowns and yards and everything in a career, okay? So Niebuhr comes in, and he's uh, a dynamic athlete uh, at quarterback. So our run game especially, our passing didn't really change too much because he could throw pretty well. But our run game became much more uh, aggressive with the quarterback run, Um Interior reads, um, backside three technique reads on the, on the stretch stuff. Um, we, we would run stretch and actually read the nose guard. So it's almost like running power read almost than the A gap in a way. Think about it. Um, you know, we, we were not afraid at all to have him pull the ball and run. There wasn't a lot of straight up quarterback run, like quarterback power, that kind of stuff, a little bit of pin and pull. Um, but, but we were very, very, um, uh, deliberate with having the quarterback run be part of our offensive game plan week in, week out. That was 2013. That was the year we were really, really good. 2014 comes back around. The same team's back for the most part. And that quarterback had, is now coming off of uh, a knee injury. So he was no longer the, dyna- the dynamic athlete he was in 2013. So now we have to protect him. We don't want him you know, carrying out zone read stuff. We don't want him pulling the ball on, you know, on, uh, on power read or that kind of stuff. So how do we protect him but still keep our offense integrity right, and be able to run when we run? Well, RPO stuff became the answer. And we re- really, I'll be honest with you, was the RPO prior to 2014 in our offense was maybe less than 30% of our called runs had some kind of an RPO attached to them. By 2014, it was probably 80% of our runs had some kind of RPO attached to them. You know? And it was, um, you know, everywhere you can possibly do it, you know, with, with the, the boundary to the field, the two-by-two, three-by-one, whatever it was, um, but it was completely out of necessity because our quarterback literally couldn't run. And if he did, he's going to get hurt and we're going to lose him and we need him to win games. Um, and that's kind of where some of the imagination and to, to, that, that's, that's helping Joe score points to this day at Oregon came from was 2014 playing with a quarterback that couldn't run. You're flipping this to more of the, the personal development side and your growth as a coach as you, you continue through this profession. You know, looking at uh, for you, just being at the right place, being at places you can develop, you know, your, your philosophy on uh, how you treat this. Cause just like, you know, we can get overwhelmed with, with scheme and, and, you know, all the different things out there. Uh, it's easy to go get caught up on 
on football scoop and all the different opportunities and, you know, network of, of hearing, well, this is going to be open or that's going to be open. You know, uh, that, that can really trip you up as well. You know, your advice yep. to an, an approach that way. I think it's, you're right. It's very easy to get, to get lost on the scoop on a daily, especially, you know, there's the, that Thanksgiving to, to Valentine's day timeframe when all the jobs are coming open and all the movements happening. Um, I think a couple things, you know, number one, uh, and this is kind of uh, an oldie but a goodie, you know, big times where you're at. Um, I think the guys that really adhere to that uh, tend to flourish where they're at and get better opportunities or at least uh, move up where they're at, you know. Um, you know, if, you, if you're if you coaching at the FCS level and all you're doing is looking at what jobs are open at the FBS level, chances are you're probably missing out something you should be doing that day, you know, whether it be a cut-up or a study or recruiting or something, you know. Uh, try to find ways to make yourself that more valuable to where you're at. Uh, and that'll make you more valuable to where you're not at, you know. Um, that's the first thing. And the second thing I think um, is, and this is, comes more so maybe with time and, 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 and maybe age and experience, but just try and surround yourself around the best people possible. And I don't necessarily mean the most successful, who have the most championships, or maybe who are the most upwardly mobile, uh, because sometimes, and we've all probably seen this firsthand in some capacity, some of the most successful people that in our, in our profession or any profession are some of the most miserable people and people you don't really want to be around if you don't have to. You know what I mean? There are a lot of coaches who have won a lot of championships, won a lot of games, that if they didn't pay their staff, so they paid them, they would have no one working for them, you know? Um, and that's fine if you, you know, you're looking for a paycheck for a year or two or if it's a means to an end. Um, but I think when you want to, you know, have a high quality of life, um, like what you do for a living, like who you do it with, I think being around good people that, um, have your same goals in mind, your same values, uh, same as anything else, same as picking a wife or picking a partner or picking anything else. It's, it's, it's very, very valuable. You know, I've been very fortunate in my career. I've, I've worked at a, a few places where it's funny, like I, I made this, this, this statement before. I've worked for a few head coaches before where like literally every single day after practice or after workouts or whatever, when the team is addressed, the notes that I have on my list for what I want to tell my guys when I call them up after practice, he's already hitting them to the whole team. He sees the same thing I see, uh, the, the, the same values, that kind of stuff. When that's happening, uh, I know I know that I'm at a place that, that I should be at the time and, and, and I, that my values are in line with the head coaches, which in turn will make my values in line with the whole programs. Coach, you've already talked about a lot of great things on today's podcast, but you know, for you, what's the one thing that really gives your players the winning edge? I think the, the, the biggest thing is I kind of alluded to earlier talking about, uh, you know, Munch and his, his influence on me, but it's, it's the ability to take very, very simple um, concepts, whether it be technique, whether it be pass for a run, whatever it is, right? Very, 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 very simple concepts. Okay. That have a lot of carryover. That way you have some flexibility in terms of who plays where. All right. And then once you get your best lineup of guys where they belong, to begin to really drill down the details and tailor the details to that individual player, you know? Um, and so again, like I, I always mention, like, you know, size, shape, right position, you know, skill set. like no two players are the same. Right. When I was at Bryant, I had two, all, I had an all conference guard and an all new England center. They were both four year starters, both great players. They were both five, nine, you know? And of course that's somewhat relative to where you're playing. I get that as well, you know, but I couldn't coach those guys. So where I coached a six-six right tackle, it just wasn't their bodies didn't move the same way, right? It doesn't mean they were better or worse players. 
the different players. You know, so I think the ability that for my guys to know exactly, you know, what's being asked of them, right, what the concept is, what the scheme is, and, and where does their cog in the wheel fit, uh, I think is, is our winning edge. Because for our listeners out there, what areas do you recruit? Uh, well, that's always the fluff, obviously, because we got staff change going on. But, uh, I, I, of course, any, any offensive lineman nationwide, is, I'm, I'll be the, the, the primary guy for that. Uh, and then I also recruit um, South Florida, Dayton, Broward counties. Uh, and I also recruit the, the, uh, that South, the, the central western part of the state, so like Clearwater, St. Pete, uh, Bradenton, Sarasota, that area as well. I know you and I connected on Twitter. Uh, share your Twitter handle with coaches. Yeah, so I'm at Coach underscore J underscore Rod uh, on my Twitter. And I'm, I'm pretty active on there. I, if guys want to, you know, message me or hit me up or whatever, uh, I'm usually pretty good about getting back to guys and uh, and uh, being open to, to anybody, really. Coach, I really appreciate your time and, and getting you here on the podcast and uh, being able to talk to you about some of these ideas, and I look forward to uh, keeping up with you and, and what you're doing, and good luck to you and the Panthers in 2021. Thanks so much, Keith. Like I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the, of the show, a huge fan of, of what you're doing and, and all the content you put out there. So to be a part of it is, is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Please, if you are enjoying the podcast, head over to iTunes or Spotify and click five-star for a rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps the podcast. Check out our new home for the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. That's at coachandcoordinator.com. And follow me on Twitter at Coach K. Grabowski.